0: This week, uh, we're gonna, for the next little while, it's going to be a little bit difficult, I'm going to speak through a book. I had the opportunity to uh, teach a series of messages in the Boise area with Foundations of Genesis, invited me to come speak to several Christian schools. So, young kids, old kids, Um, and several churches, but it's speaking two or three times a day for six days or something like that. So, I cover your your preparation and those kinds of things, and also just preparing the hearts for what the Lord has for us and all that. So, as I go through and working towards preparations, that's in January, and I'm honest, I don't even
1: remember. Name. So, I had
0: an email and I lost. Is the long and short of it. Uh, So, this is one of those messages that I tend to share that I get to. It needs further development. For example, the title. Choose this day. Maybe this. There's going to be a few things in there that you might notice. I think I got most of them out, but I overlooked that one. Uh, I would. Encourage you guys' feedback as well. I would really appreciate it because it's a different style of presentation. Sort of perhaps some of the messages of the churches can be a little bit more sermon style, but ultimately I'd like it to be fairly equipping and, and kind of training style. So, uh, this I developed for enough far enough to get through today, so there's probably more to come on it, but um. Do appreciate your feedback and thoughts and if you have things say hey, this would this is, some of this is going to be very much a review for you guys because we talk about some of these things a lot but um it's not too much of that all that said let's get into it so <clears throat> i want to talk this morning and begin by just talking about establishing the heart of faith. And we sort of introduced this a little bit as we got into uh, the book of James and that last chapter. Uh, But as we do this,
1: maybe, hold on a second.
0: About a couple of things that um, we talk about presuppositions, we talk about, and I want to define a few of those a little bit this morning because there are certain things that we as believers need to understand are always true. And when we come to the, the discussion about faith and establishing our faith, it doesn't begin with. with the idea that God exists and his word is true. Those two foundational elements, those two things that if God exists and he's the creator, then we're going to build our life upon what he said. And he's given us everything that we need to know in his word. Paul, when he was talking about uh, his heritage effectively, how he come up, how he had reason to boast amongst anyone else in Israel, Uh, attending the right schools, being part of the right tribes, all of these kinds of things, he concludes, but I count all of that as loss for the excellency of knowing Christ, for knowing what we know from John chapter 1 is the Word. So in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Suppose in Scripture the first thing that God chooses to reveal about Himself, about all that He has created, is the number one that He exists. We don't get any explanation about where He came from because He's eternal; and He's always existed. In Psalm chapter nineteen, verse one, talks about the heavens declaring His glory and the firmament His handiwork. In other words, everything that we see around us in the universe and all those kinds of things give us insight into who God is. They declare his glory, his majesty, his ability to create and sustain everything we encounter. And as we... Understanding, right, we, we just lost, I don't know if you've seen any of the pictures, of the James Webb Space Telescope and all these things, and it's... I mean, the images are pretty spectacular. But there's not going to... There won't be any discoveries that are contrary... What we find in scripture. discover anywhere else that, that what we read in scripture in Genesis is different or somehow it's just not going to happen. If you read about even the James Webb telescope, right? You're saying, well, gee, what we're seeing is billions of years old. It's just getting here in the most beautiful. Well, that's not true. Is all of that was created at the same time. There's a different assumption, a different presupposition being applied. Secondly, God's word is true. Everything that He has said, listen, this is necessary for you to understand and to know to build your life upon, given to us in His word. And He concluded it in the, at the end of. Revelation, he says, don't add to it, don't take away from everything that is here is necessary. Even those Old Testament stories, those lineages, those heritage, all of those things. I'm watching an interesting video uh, this morning, I may be encouraged to I can sh- share with you, but it's a video series by Anthony Genesis, and they're talking about DNA.
1: This guy has done
0: a, and I apologize, I don't remember his name, but he's done a whole bunch of research. He and his Genetics team looking at where people come from, and then and we began to ask the question if we read about history, even in scripture, and we read about it in these isolated pockets. And so, as they begin to look at all of this, that's where people were. We read about history in those particular areas now, maybe it's not exclusive, maybe there are places elsewhere where the people were kind of spreading out and sort of doing that kind of thing, but we understand that from the Tower of Babel. On people have been spreading out, and based upon the languages that God confused them into, they've been congregating based on understanding genetic genetic uh, appearances and things like that, different adaptations based on where they live and all sorts of things. And now we have people that look different. People, I mean, there's. The people who have different dominant traits. None of that is contrary to what we read in Scripture. In fact, it's confirmation of what we read in Scripture. And if we understand that God's Word is true, and they began to look and say, hey, if we build our understanding of genetics upon what Scripture says, all of a sudden it becomes clear from A to B, all the way to Z. But when we apply a different worldview, when we apply a different set of presuppositions, genetics is on its head. In John chapter 17, verse 17, is Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying for his disciples. He's praying for you and I. He says this, he says, Sanctify them by thy truth, by truth, by thy. we're going to turn there. Turn to John chapter 17, verse 17. <clears throat> Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is true. It's the foundation of everything. It's how we understand and interpret the way around us. So these are our presuppositions. And if we go forward, as we talk about establishing faith, these things are assumed to be true. We're not going to get to the same place if we have differences here. These things are assumed to be true. We have to understand that for you and I, as believers, the world's not friendly. It's not nice. And the reason it's not nice is because the world is at odds with its creator. They're working against God. The Bible makes it very plain that you're either for him or you're against him. There's not really a neutral ground. We're going to talk about that just a little bit as we progress and as we close this point in particular. The world is at odds with its creator. What it does is that it's... Grab on the ideas that are contrary to the things we find in scripture. Look at some of the, some of the, just the, I was about to say minor, they're not minor, but you look at some of the things that we see in our world today in regard to abortion, marriage, the the controversy, and you have to shake your head when you have to say the controversy over gender, just general perversion. In other words, calling those things that are good that God would call evil. And those things that are evil that God would call good. And this is the world that that we live in that is corrupted by sin. And not only that, but we find that it begins with attacks upon creation. Because if we can remove the account of creation, then all of a sudden God isn't who he said he is, his word isn't true. We've attacked the two presuppositions by attacking creation. It becomes a far more fundamental doctrine when we understand it from that perspective. I want to talk about Joshua and Caleb for just a moment. Because Joshua and Caleb are an example for you and I of living in a world that isn't friendly. Remember that as the nation of Israel is about to go into the promised land, led uh, and and they send some spies, one from each tribe, 12 guys go in to spy out the land, to see what it's like, to make sure that, hey, this is really as good a deal as we thought it was going to be. When we come back with the report, they spend some time there. They come back with some of the food plant they've seen that is, in fact, just as God promised, a land that is flowing with milk and honey. It's good. It's really, really good. But there's this one problem. There are giants in the land. There's lots of people that we're going to have to be at war with. We're concerned. And so the 10, 10 guys say, listen, we, we can't go in. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. They're just going to smash us like bugs. But you have two spies, Joshua and Caleb. These guys who are living in an unfriendly world, amongst the people of God, in fact, but living in this unfriendly world who choose to operate by faith. They say, listen, if God is for us, effectively, if God is for us, who can be he against us? God of of creation, who spoke everything into existence, is on your side? What foe, what enemy, what giant can stand against it? They chose to see things differently. They chose to see, see things through the same presuppositions that we do. That God exists and that his word is true. But what he said to Abraham, that I'm going to give you this land, everywhere that you walk, Abraham, it's going to be for you and your descendants. This is the promised land. Go in and take it. This is what God has promised. Guys, let's go in. And people listened to the ten spies. They didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb. They had a different worldview. They were walking by sight and not by faith. The world's not friendly. It's going to come against us. When we choose to operate in faith, when we choose to operate in trust of God, it's going to come against us. And unfortunately, at times, it's going to come against us it's going to come from a friendly or what we perceive to be a friendly team. Whether it's other churches, whether it's other believers, we in Scripture are given instruction about how to deal with that. And if God's word is true, then we need to deal with it in accordance with Scripture. That means we're going to extend grace to those who are attacking them. So we're going to deal with that as Jesus has prescribed. And that's okay. We live in a world that is corrupted by sin. If you and I were perfect,
1: bring you on. It's not
0: surprising the world's not friendly. First, we have John chapter 16, if you will, for just a moment. John chapter 16, verse 33. Should be no surprise to us if we're familiar with Scripture, if we understand what the Word of God says. Jesus himself said in verse 33 of John 16, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Right? There's going to be hardship. It's almost a promise. Here it is. This is what we will expect as believers, as those who walk in faith. In John chapter 15, verse 20, if you want to jump a few, uh, few verses back in your Bible with me. He said, remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will also keep yours. They're gonna persecute Jesus, they're gonna persecute us. And I, what I want to understand from that is right, they're not coming against you and I, it's not personal. They're coming against the Lord, they're persecuting because you are his ambassador. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter 5, 8. find this warning it says be sober be vigilant because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walks about seeking whom he may devour And right? we have an enemy in this world that is banned from the very beginning when we read through scripture and we look at everything that god created and he said he is very good as he declared it to be perfect and the choices put before him, the deception of the serpent, of Satan, before Adam and Eve, when they chose to sin. And since then, right, we have the enemy, the, the, the devil, who is going around looking for who he may devour, those who he may devour The of God, you know, as we take, quenches the fiery darts of the enemy, where he sows out. It says take the shield of faith. In Matthew chapter five, if you'll turn there with me. Matthew chapter five. <clears throat> Verses 10 through 12. Here is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Not only are we told that we will experience. Persecution and hardship, and those that come against us, as we choose to walk by faith, choose to trust in the Lord. We're told that there's a blessing associated with it. Now, I don't just point out that, that that persecution comes as a result of our affiliation with Jesus. We're not persecuting us because we're, we're taking a stand for something in particular. We're taking a stand for the Lord, and that's why the persecution, because. It says here that they will. Ruin. What should I say again? For my sake, verse eleven. How matter of you for my sake? In Romans eighteen, verses eighteen through twenty-one. We had this idea. You can turn there if you'd like to. We had the idea conveyed to us: that the world's opposition is the effect of sin in the world around us. But that's, that's where we're at. And then we look at James chapter 4. Remember there, in the first two chapters, why is there war and strife and hardship? Why is there all this bad stuff happening? It's because you lost, and you're trying to consume upon your lust. You're trying to indulge ourselves. You're trying to live for something outside of ourselves. we are trying to live for those things that gratify us, that satisfy us, rather than to live for the Lord. The world's going to come against us. The world's not friendly. has a problem with God and his creation, it has a problem with sin, and it has a problem with Jesus Christ being the singular means of salvation. And as a result of that, when you and I take a stand and say, we're going to walk by faith, we're going to trust in the, in the Lord, we're going to operate in obedience to his word, revealed truth, we're going to come against We're going to become the thing that they hate the most, that shines light into their darkness. We're going to feel opposition. Back to John chapter 16. Back to John chapter 16. This is all very encouraging, I'm sure, so far, that it's going to be rough. I mean, if you can sum it up as a believer, Doing it right as a believer, it's gonna be wrong. Jesus said in, in John chapter 16, the first three verses, he said, These things I have spoken unto you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time kind of comes that whosoever kills you will think that he God's service. And these people are doing you because they have not known the Father, nor me. Jesus said, he, he forewarned us. That means he warned us time. He said, I'm telling you these things so, so that you won't be offended. That word offended means stumble. You won't be tripped up. I'm telling you that there's going to be hard times. I'm telling you there's going to be persecution. I'm telling you all these things so that when it happens, you don't stumble. Jesus said, listen, you don't start building a building unless you count the cost." not be able to see And in the same respect, you and I as believers need to understand that when we come to faith, we come to faith. And this as Jesus said, you're going to pick up your cross daily. We're going to today make the choice that I'm going to walk by faith. And even though things may not go my way as a result of that, as far as I can perceive it, I'm still going to do it still going to walk by faith.
1: Because it's to what what Jesus said would happen.
0: Now the thing is, that when we find these things, we find these things that Jesus is telling us about, we understand conflicts with sin, and we understand conflicts with uh, people that are just blatantly opposed to Christianity. There are other places where it may be more surprising. And then, two examples. Number one, atheism, obviously, they're against God.
1: I should the spelling I'm sorry, atheism. Somebody
0: It's <laughs> like a bonus.
1: Okay.
0: Atheism is going to come against us, and that should be of no surprise. But here's the thing, why does it come against us? It's trying to deny the existence of God because it wants to soothe his conscience. It wants to say, he doesn't exist, therefore the sin that I'm indulging, those things I'm pursuing are really not wrong. I'm just an animal that's satisfying its, its desires and needs like any other animal, which is a godless mindset. In addition to that, though, you have false religions, you have those spiritual people. And what they're doing is saying, Listen, I'm going to soothe my conscience, not with truth, not with application of the, the salvation, but I'm going to soothe my conscience by my own efforts, by my own work, by those things that I know are good. So you have uh, this temptation and, and people falling subject to works, performance based salvation, which is no salvation at all because you nor I nor them are good enough and never can be. So, both uh, and spiritual people, they're soothing their conscience, making themselves until they get the next injection, the next inoculation against the conviction that the Holy Spirit sows in their hearts. Jesus gives us advanced notice. These are, these are the people that are going to come against us. And don't be surprised when it seems like well, we can have a spiritual conversation with this person but when we get to the nitty-gritty, when we get to salvation, when we get to reveal truth, there's a problem all of a sudden. Even though they're spiritual, even though they, they're open to having that kind of conversation, when we are exclusive, just as scripture is exclusive, they stand against it. What it means is that all the stuff they've done to skew their conscience doesn't count for anything. Pope Jeremiah records it this way, that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They don't want to be faced with that truth. I want to do some spiritual accounting for just a moment. Turn me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. I may have gotten ahead of myself. Jesus said as yes, he's walking with the disciples, beginning in verse 25 of Luke 14 there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father, and his mother, and wife, and children, and brethren, and sisters, yea, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And does not not his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you, the power, sits not down first and counts the cost, whether he has sufficient to finish it lest happily, after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, and all that go by begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he goes to war, sit down first and console whether he be able to, with 10,000, meet that which comes to him with 20,000. Or else, while there is yet a great way off, he sends an ambassador and desires traditions of peace. So likewise, Whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Now Jesus isn't telling us that hey, we have to hate our family. That's not the message. But by comparison, our first affiliation, our first love, should be our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we decided, listen, I'm going to trust in Jesus Christ. He's telling us. We need to do some accounting beforehand. And here's the thing, if you didn't do the accounting beforehand, you could do it now. We're going to be fine there. You notice that there is something here. He says, listen, I want you to remain. This should be their first love. Remember that it's Jesus uh, is revealing to John in the book of Revelation that we have the, the, those seven churches talked about and One of them, Church of Ephesus, they left their first love. They fall and prey to these other things, these outside influences, those things that would tie them up otherwise. They might be convicted things. We're not told what they are. But as a result of whatever it is that they fall and prey to, their first love, Jesus Christ, has been neglected. And the same falls true for you and I. That I purpose at that moment that I trusted Christ, that I'm going to, from this day forward, in faith. I'm going to trust Him no matter what may come. I don't know perhaps fully what that means, but that's my choice. That's my decision. This is what I'm, this is what I'm going to stand. Maybe we did. And the inevitable happens that there are ups and downs in our faith, that there are moments where we trust well, and moments where we trust. Not so well. And God extends grace to each and every one of us. The idea is this that we would have predetermined what we're going to do in all of those instances. Knowing that Jesus said, listen, there are going to be hard times, there's going to be those things that come against you, that the world, as a result of sin and corruption, perversion is going to attack those things of the Lord. Therefore, determine this day who you're going to serve. And so at the moment of salvation, we do well to talk to people. We talk about Jesus Christ saving them. We talk about the gospel. We do well to give them some spiritual accounting. Not only means the works or or something, but it means the you need to be
1: aware. From This day forward, serve the Lord.
0: Predetermined, even now, you're stand in faith. 1 Peter 5, verse 9, we read verse 8. This enemy, the devil, who is going about trying to devour us, who comes against us. And it tells us, in the next verse, verse 9, how we overcome that attack. He says, Who, speaking of the devil, resist steadfast in the faith, unwavering, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions were accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We resist him steadfast in the faith. James chapter 5, verse 8. as you also be paid, be also patient establish your hearts for the coming of the lord, lord draws nigh right? we root ourselves in truth in philippians chapter 3 philippians chapter 3 if you'll turn there with me verses seven through nine this is here where paul is talking about having confidence in the flesh that those things that i was soothing myself with were the right things quote unquote therefore i had more confidence in my flesh i could boast in my flesh more than any other person and he says this in these last few verses verse seven through nine but what things were gained to me those i counted lost for christ Yea, doubtless, I count all things but loss to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things that you count, them, but dung that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. This steadfastness, Example that even though he fell into hardship, persecutions, shipwreck, all of these kinds of things, even though from the moment of his conversion and his initial preaching there in Damascus, people wanted to put him to death. He said, no, I'm going to stand firm. He determined that I'm going to walk in faith. I'm going to trust this Jesus Christ who met me on the road and saved me and delivered me from the bondage of sin and death. Serve him. One more. It's not on the screen. It's a bonus. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Verses 24 through 25. Jesus concluding the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. The rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And he compares that to the next person who doesn't dig down, who doesn't establish their faith. They don't go down to the rock, they just sort of build it on the surface. And when the storm hits, it's lost because the shifting sand leaves no foundation. Right, did we count the cost? Did we stand firm, did we take the time to root ourselves and say, listen, I'm going to stand firm. My predetermined plan is to trust the Lord. Therefore, I'm going to know his word. I'm going to stand upon truth. We're going to dig deep. You realize that it's more work to get to bedrock than to go on the sand. It takes more effort. Unless
1: locally the bedrock's on the surface. There's two places like that. But ultimately, it's going to take
0: effort. We're going to have to dig down. We're going to dig in something to know something. We're going to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, the scripture says. We're going to trust that the Spirit is going to reprove us or lead us, instruct us in truth and righteousness and judgment, and bring it to mind all those things that Jesus has taught us, which is what Jesus himself said the Holy Spirit would do. We're going to be those Bereans who take the word of God and studying to see whether we're hearing it so.
1: But this is it, this is what it says, I'm going to put it into practice. We build upon that foundation,
0: build upon that truth, storms inevitably come when those persecutions and those hardships when the people are making fun of us and they're mocking us, when the world around us says, listen, you fools, why would you trust an ancient book that good advice? We stand firm when scientists would say, Listen, we have disproven scripture because of X, Y, and Z. We would stand firm, consequently, and just by the way, every time that science has claimed that they've disproven scripture, it was either found to be false or there was new scientific discovery that confirmed scripture.
1: Always confirm truth.
0: We're going to be steadfast in the faith we're going to stand firm with what god has told us what he has revealed now we have to be ready this jesus forewarned us we have to make the preparations we have to do the work effectively if i can phrase it that way and i don't want anybody to confuse you can be confused and say sam told us that salvation is by works that's not, that's not what i'm saying what we're talking about is something different, and we're going to get to that here in a moment. We're talking about discipleship. But we're going to be ready. If Jesus said there are hard times coming, that you will have troubles, and that to avoid those troubles, we need to be steadfast in the faith. When the enemy attacks, we need to be steadfast in the faith. How do we do that? How do we get to bedrock? In Second Timothy we turn there with me, chapter four. We begin, we establish our presuppositions, right? That God exists and his word is true. We're gonna build upon that foundation. And that's the foundation that we build, our predetermined plan of action. You know, of all the books in the Bible, first and second Timothy are always the hardest thing to find. I usually switch to Thessalonians and verse 17. And, you know, they all start with season. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. He says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be instant, or to be ready. in and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they keep to themselves teachers, having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. Now, Timothy, I realize he's, there's a special context here. This is one of those pastoral epistles. This is the instruction to a young pastor, and that's part of the context. But here's the thing: you and I, believers, this is still so this is still the living, active word of God engaging you and I. And He says, "Listen, I charge you. I give you this charge. This is something to be engaged in. And I give you this before Jesus Christ, who's going to judge the dead and the living, the quick and the dead." And what do we do? Preach the word. right? Take the truth that God has revealed and share that with others. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. All the time. Rebuke. Excuse me, reprove. Which is correct. Rebuke. Which is standing against so if I can just be that simplistic. Exhort. That means to push on to good things. Suffering with patience and doctrine. A an understanding of practice. That's still true for you and I. And listen, there's going to be a time, and I'm convinced that we're probably closer to that time. Well, not probably, we are closer to that time than Kennedy was. But people don't want to hear it. They want to hear those things that help soothe their conscience. They don't want to be confronted with truth. They don't want to be looking into the mirror of the Word of God and seeing the egg on their face, their natural self, as we read there in James. I just want something that gets their ears, makes me feel good, giving that little inoculation, and then on a sudden, next Sunday, we'll come back and get another one. It's far and far less popular. We're going to be ready all the time, in season and out of season. That means that we're not just engaging in in study of the Word. We're not just engaging in the relationship with Jesus Christ through prayer and, and fellowship. We're not just doing those things when everything's hard. We're doing those things all the time. So that we're ready. If you
1: go out and in, in,
0: you know, in the middle of summer, this time of year, July, August, you decide that I'm going to run a marathon in Phoenix in July or August, the hottest time of the year. You're never going to hydrate yourself enough if you don't start the day before. You're going to sweat too much. You're going to, to lose too much uh, of those vital things that we need to keep us going. If we're in the middle of a hardship, we're in the middle of that persecution, the world opposing the Lord, and at that point we try to build enough here, we're never going to get ahead. Now I'm not saying that the the Scripture, that the Holy Spirit, can't overcome our mistake of not preparing ahead of time. Because God can do anything. But what I'm saying is that it's going to be an awful lot harder. You're never going to get enough water in. if we start before the race. If we start before the hardship and affliction, because you know, running at Phoenix is in July. I mean, first of all, running. Secondly, the Phoenix, it's like I don't do in it. the pre outside. Like, please don't. Why would you? Like, we don't start before the bad stuff happens. All of that being bad, in my opinion.
1: You got to be ready. You got
0: to do this. It's three fifteen. Ready? Always give an answer for the hope that lies within you. It's our encouragement, it's the imperative, the command to be an apologist. that person who can give a well-reasoned answer for the hope that we hold. Prepare always to sow the seeds of the gospel. Be ready to stand firm with a biblical answer. Second Corinthians chapter 10, turn there with me. We have to realize as well that the foe that we fight, the battle that we're against, Even though it's against people, those people who may come against us is not a physical battle. It's a spiritual battle. They have a spiritual problem, and we can address it with spiritual tools. That's the equipment we've been given. Second Corinthians chapter ten, beginning in verse three: For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual. Right? There are spiritual. Uh, excuse me, they're not spiritual, but mighty through God to the pulling down a stronghold, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. There are imperatives there for you and I as believers that we would establish ourselves in the faith, that we brought ourselves and the way we think and understand the world around us into subjection to truth. But in addition to that, when we engage those who, are, who we may be afflicted by, when the world comes against us, when the storms, hit, when all of those things, when we're running in Phoenix in July or August, this is what we grab. This is how we engage on a spiritual level, because they're not coming against us because they have a physical problem. They're coming against us because they have a spiritual problem. Ephesians chapter 6, this is where we read about the armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm not going to read all of it because probably most of us have heard sermons or read and we're familiar with the different articles that are there. But I do want to read just a few verses in Ephesians chapter 6 beginning in verse 10. Sort of preface the application of the armor of God. Soldiers wear that armor and they put it on when they know they're going to battle. But there are things that we do ahead of time. We don't just grab people from the street and send them immediately to war. No, we send them to boot camp first. We get them conditioned mentally, physically and then not only that, we train them specifically for tasks they're going to be doing before they ever hit the battlefield. And in the same respect, before we put on the armor of God, even before we put on those things that are necessary, Paul writes this beginning in verse 10: Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Before we ever put on the armor of God, we've established ourselves in faith, in trust of the Lord. And in the power of his might, just like Joshua Caleb, if God is for us, who could be against us? I'm not fighting a losing battle. Even though it's uphill, even though it's July in Phoenix, it's not a losing battle. goes on, put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It's a broad front that we're fighting. It's not a specific battle. We're engaged on many different levels, many different ways. We have to steel ourselves, we have to harden ourselves in the power of God, in his word, and his ability. The armor of God, and I'm just going to say, say it this way, demands trust. We can be challenged by this. We can take this personally and we can say, Listen, I realize I hear what you're saying. I need to establish myself in faith. Lord, I'm going to put in work. I'm going to be in your word. I'm going to let your spirit lead in guide and approve me correct I'm in 100%. But I want to do more than that because I want to invest in the future. I want my children to have that same foundation. Or I want them to have a better foundation than I did, depending on where we came from. I do more than the, when I find somebody that I share the gospel with and they respond to it in a positive way. I want to be able—we're not just talking about generations that fall behind us, but those future generations of believers. How do we prepare them? sow the seeds so that when they come to faith or so that when our children are encountering these things in the world, dude, they're, they're going to face the far worse than I have. How do we prepare them? And if you have any really quick transitions from what we just talked about to, to this, let me know because I don't have one. <laughs> the best I could do is the whole act of shooter training. Right? It's a big thing in corporate America today because you got to know how to deal with it because it happens frequently enough anymore that you just got to know. And the biggest thing that people talk about is situational awareness. You walk into the building, where are the exits? How do you get out? But you take the time to walk in and prepare yourself so that if in the event that that does happen, you know how to get out, you know where to hide, you know, you, you know how to handle yourself, whatever it may be. Being prepared is the way, how do we invest in that? How do we train people to do that? Uh, three things that I want to talk about. Three things that I think establish a foundation. And before I even get to that, I just want to mention that each one of these three things, whether well, may be general and, and, and fairly broad, you can riff on that thing if you're a musician, you know, you riff on that thing, here's the music, this is it, and that's the music, make it up, you know. You have to be a good musician, so I can never riff on anything, but here it is. We can build upon this in the specific areas that we're going to account. Right. We just had opportunity to talk with our children about abortion and Roe versus Wade and And not only that, but all the ways that here we have, government is engaged in those things. are all not engaged in and so on and so forth. The the gamut of topics that we could engage with our children about, whether we did or not, and I did not enough. So these three things that I'm going to suggest are things that we can build upon. We have to have the foundations in place first. So one, We're going to talk about God as creator. If he exists and his word is true, we have to begin there. Genesis chapter 1, I already said that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 31 of Genesis chapter 1, that's where God declares everything to be perfect. The reason that it's important that we understand that God is the creator is because he's the one that sets up the rules. We don't get to make up our own. He's established how tall you have to be to ride the rock. This is the level of righteousness that has to be attained
1: before you can get on the salvation The problem is that are never measuring up to that. He gets to make that rule.
0: He declares his glory. He, he makes it known. He reveals himself to us through the creation he's made. In, in Psalm 191, we already talked about that, but turn with me to Psalm 97, verse 6. Psalm 97, verse 6. The heavens declare his righteousness. And all the people see his glory. Not just his word, not just his, not, not just his handiwork, but but here it is: his righteousness. Revealed creation, his rightness, his, his ability to be the one that establishes what is good and bad, what is right and wrong, all of those things consistent with his character, his nature, who he is. In Colossians chapter one, Colossians chapter one. Verses 16 through 17. This is about Jesus Christ. And it says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. I just pause it right there. Here is Jesus Christ. And if you read in John chapter 1, the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word took on flesh and beheld his glory as the only begotten Son of God. Jesus Christ, when he was born, what did the angels proclaim? "Manuel, God with us. So here he is. And it's saying that he is the express image that he was God in the flesh here on earth. For by him, verse 16, were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrown or dominions, or principalities, or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. So here's the thing. We understand that here is God. He's created everything. We understand that even Jesus Christ, and not only that, but the Holy Spirit, to be honest, is all credited in the New Testament for having created. Because there's one God. Right, we understand, here's the, here's the Trinitarian concept. Let's talk about that. We're going to leave it that, gender here. Because of what I want to talk about is that here, here he is. He's made everything. Those things that we can see and those things that we can't see. Those spiritual powers, those places of darkness, all those things that we're fighting against. He didn't pray to people. They were very good. It was perfect when God made everything. And there was sin. Things were corrupted. I realize that there's all kinds of conundrums and things that we have to unpack in that, but let's just leave it that simple for now. God is not the author of sin. He made everything perfect. Notice here, that those things that are visible, invisible, thrones, dominion, principalities, or powers, everything that exists is established—is subject to him. You know, there isn't a government that it is above his control, there isn't a King or a sovereign or a monarch or an emperor or a ruler or you or me—it is above his jurisdiction. He's the final authority. He's made it all. Not only was it created by him, it says it was created for him. I mean, it God in His infinite knowledge of what is about to happen over the next eons of time is able to take that and redeem it for good. That he will even use those things to bring about his plan and purpose and will. And before we boggle our minds with that, just understand that his ways are not a We thought about it, it differently. We would have done it different. But God, in his wisdom, did it the way that he did it. And he will do it the way that he will do it. But there isn't anything out there that is escaping that jurisdiction. There isn't anything out there that is somehow greater than or doesn't fall under the same standard that God has established for everyone. Verse 17, He is before all things, He's preeminent, He is above all things. By Him, all things consist, they're maintained, they're held together.
1: Creator
0: by his own design, his creation declares his glory and righteousness.
1: God is sovereign,
0: the only one, above all, above everything. And as the creator, as that in that position, he gets to establish the rules. While that seems like a simple truth, it's foundational truths that understand the way that we understand and interact with the world around us.
1: Secondly, we need to talk about sin and the reality
0: of hell. Genesis chapter 3 is where we read about the fall. Genesis chapter 3, and I want to just turn there and read it because it gives us clarity and insight to hear the word of God. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did. The eyes of them were both open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Like this is the fall. Before we get to the next verse, let's just understand it. God had already told them, "Listen, you are given to be stewards of the earth. You're to take the many. You're, you're watching over all of this." There's this one tree, though, in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and that. And when you do eat from that tree, you'll die. That's the consequence. That is the penalty. So from the very beginning, from before the existence of sin, God said sin equals death. That's the consequence. He'd already proclaimed it. Whether Adam and Eve sinned or not, sin equals death. But they did. Here's the serpent. He comes in, Satan. He deceives them because causes doubt. And they eat the fruit. They make the choice to engage in sin. To do that thing that God has told them, commanded them not to do. And as a result of that, you notice that in, in the next verse here, verse 8, when the, uh, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden before the day. And Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the of The first things that happened as a result separation between god and man the shame of sin and here i am in my sin knowing that i've done that thing that you told me not to do and so i'm going to hide and That becomes the natural state of man from here on right we teach our and i've used this illustration before when your little kid decides he's going to sneak a cookie he doesn't sneak the cookie and run out in the middle of the living room and eat it in front of everyone. he sneaks the cookie and eats it in the closet. Just like Adam and Eve, he hides himself to do that thing that he knows he's not supposed to do. The origin of sin is where it began. And from that point on, mankind has been plunged into the chaotic consequence of sin. 323 for there's none righteous no novel 623 for the wages of sin and death right? what we earn what we deserve as a result of our sin is death and it always has been since the very beginning first me to Luke chapter 16 Luke chapter 16 and in this this chapter God gives us a through Jesus gives us a parable a parable of a rich man and a baker named Lazarus. Because when we talk about death, we have to understand that what we can discuss here is more than this physical death. That's part of it. In fact, in the original language, it says you will die. It says in dying, you will die. In other words, you're going to die completely, but along the way, you'll be dying. This is exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. It? They were immediately snuffed out they immediately lost relationship to God. They were immediately separated from him. They were now his enemies as opposed to his friends. And the Bible makes it clear that you and I are at enmity. We are enemies of God. This is the reality we are born in. Luke chapter 16, I'm just going to read part of it, beginning in verse 19. It's giving us this picture of what hell is it. The spiritual part of that, that spiritual aspect. Where well, we might remove ourselves physically, but we remove ourselves spiritually from the relationship that is with God. We are removed from that. It says this, and he said likewise to him. Okay. Luke chapter
1: 16, verse
0: 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fame fared sumptuously. Okay? And there's this beggar named Lazarus who just begs for crumbs, and the dogs come and lick his sores. And they both die in the same night. Lazarus, this beggar, goes to Abraham's bosom, which is a place of paradise. Listen, don't worry about it. It doesn't exist anymore. For you and I, believers, to be absent from bodies and present with the Lord. It's different today than it was. Jesus had not come at this point, he hadn't paid the penalty for sin. There had to be somewhere in between for those who walked in faith. Don't kid yourself, it was always faith. What we find is that this rich man ends up going to hell, as it's called here, which is a total depression. This is eternal death. This is that spiritual death, not just the physical death. He cried out in verse 24 and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his feet and water and cool my tongue for I have tormented this flame I mean here we get just a very small glimpse of what's happening in hell there but ultimately it's a bad place but he's only been here a brief time and he's already begging that they would just give him a drop a single drip of water Revelation chapter 20 Revelation chapter 20, verse 14 says, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Right? We have this idea in scripture, and it's clear the truth is hell is a real place and it's not a friendly place at all. It's bad. As bad as it may be, it gets worse because death and hell are passing into the lake of fire. There is eternal. There is, there is eternal torment consequence for the sins that we committed in this life. And God, who is the Creator, has established all this to Himself.
1: He is just. He is loving. He is merciful.
0: He not death. And when we are sharing the gospel, it's only this is what we're sparing them from. This. What we're snatching These are the flames that we are pulling them out of. Not some torment here in this life, torment in the next life. We need to talk with our kids about God and Him being the Creator and establishing the world to be the sovereign of the the universe that we live in. We need to talk with the future generations about the reality of sin and the reality of hell. Back of there, born in sin, and that the predetermined plan, the predetermined destiny, apart from Christ, is eternal consequence for sin, it is torment in the lake of fire. Last and probably best, we need to talk with them about salvation and Jesus Christ. In Second Corinthians, chapter five. Verse 21, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, because it sums up in such a very precise way exactly what happened, what Jesus did on our behalf so that we might be spared the consequence of the lake of fire, we might be spared the consequence of hell. Sorry, it's a long chapter again. For he has made him, this is speaking of Jesus Christ, God has made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us. That we could be, uh, excuse me, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here's the thing, there is a consequence and a penalty for sin no matter what. God is not mocked but over man, so does that shall he also reap, Galatians 6, 7. God, in his mercy toward you and I, said, listen, this is what I'll do. I will send my son. And he promised this all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The proto-evangelion, the first utterance of the gospel, the promise of a deliverer from the consequence of sin. And he said, I'll send my son to die in your place. I will make him, though he's perfect, and he'll be sin on the cross. And he'll bear the punishment and the consequence for your sin. And in exchange for that, what I'm gonna do is make you his righteousness. Remember that God gets to set that bar, how high it is, and it's set at the level that only his righteousness
1: is equal to it.
0: So no matter how good of a life we may live, we're never gonna to have to. But when he says, listen, Jesus Christ is gonna be sin, and you're gonna be made my righteousness, hey, you get on the salvation bus. There you go. At that point, we get to sing the song, I've Got a Home in Glory Land. Here it is. Because of his, his substitution on our behalf. In John three sixteen verse 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And I want to just pause for a moment. The world takes that as condemnation. They come against that. They stand against it because it's singular. Because it's the only way. And I'm into all these other ways. But here's the thing. God clarifies in the next verse in John three seventeen. God didn't send his son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's why he came. We'll talk about that just a to- Again, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But, probably the biggest but ever, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ His Son. And I want you to think about eternal life for just a moment. If death is this eternal torment and punishment for sin, eternal life is something completely different. It's the opposite. It is the reward and favor of God for eternity. It's being in his presence, it's being his child, being in that special familial relationship with the rest of the body of Christ, the true believers, for eternity. Now, I only know what the Bible tells us about that, but I suspect that there's even more to it than it's revealed, because I have not seen, nor has anyone understood, or have we even imagined the things that God has prepared for us. That's a really clumsy sort of paraphrase, but there it is. Not as hell may be, we're only getting a glimpse of it. I think it's far worse And as good as heaven may be, we're only given a glimpse. I think it's far better. We have to talk with people about salvation in Jesus Christ. We have to say it in such a way that it's understood that it's Jesus said, I am the way the life, no man comes to the Father but through singular. It's okay to draw a line in the sand. And when you do that and it causes offense to somebody, listen, Jesus told us that's going to happen. Stand on truth. Joshua and Caleb that are painting the picture that we get to stand firm on. The here it is if God is for us, we can be against them. If you choose that by faith, you receive Christ, who can be against you? No man, even yourself, can't stand you out of the hand of God. We've got to talk with them about God as the creator. That's a foundational truth they have to understand. We have to talk with people about the reality of hell and sin. The world wants to call those things bad that are good, and those things that are good, bad, and that's the world's living. So we have to define, we have to clarify sin. And we have to talk with them about salvation. We have to talk about Jesus being the only way to be saved. As those are foundational to Christianity. Those are three sort of simple things. But if we're going to combat, we're going to start building a foundation, we have to get to the bedrock. It's simple foundations upon which we go deeper and further understanding. What we're talking about is discipleship. As believers, uh, we're talking about discipleship. And before we get to believers, I want to talk about non-believers, those, those who are outside, those who have rejected the gospel. Now, don't give up on them. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 1 uh, that without excuse, Romans chapter 2 tells us without excuse. So Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold or who suppress the the truth and unrighteousness. That's the world around us. I just want my conscience to. I don't want to be faced with the reality of my simpleness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. The invisible things of Him, the creation of the world, are the things that were made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Right? God has built it right into them. We call this conscience. We have this understanding of right and wrong, good and evil. You didn't teach your kids that they had to how to sin, they knew how to do that, but they knew that they were doing something wrong, so they hid. We tend to sue that consciousness, oh, wasn't that bad, it's just a white lie.
1: It's small, it's I sin, and sin.
0: John chapter 3, verse 17 through 21. We talked, we already talked about Jesus and why he came being that expression of God's love, not coming to condemn, but to save the world. But it goes on in verses 18 through 21 and it talks about the this condemnation that men of darkness rather than light. I don't want do that. I don't want do I mean, if you get to the end of that, I'd make this distinction between those who will come to the light because they hey exposed by If they're wrong, I want to be corrected of them. And if they're right, then people need to understand that they're, they're done for God. Let your work so shine before men that they may see them and glorify your, our Father which is in heaven. The world stands in opposition to that. The world says, listen, I don't want anybody pointing the finger at me. And that's what we experience today, right? Then, then here we are, we're all trying to satisfy... And, and indulge our lusts, whatever that may be. And so, for you and I, as believers, to talk about things that, that God calls sin, we're attacked. We're, we're, we're labeled all kinds of things. Because we're shining a light on darkness. And they're scrambling, trying to turn that light off. But if they hate us in an evil light, they can superconsciously just move it over here. as believers,
1: there, there are some things that, that I want
0: to talk about. In James chapter 3, verse 10, it talks about uh, cursing and blessing God with the same as this ought not to be. The, James, really, the, the big picture, the very general context of that book, what it's all about, is that there's a way we ought to live. We need to be rooted, not one foot in the world, one foot over here, this double-minded, double-hearted man, he's unstable in all the ways, and we should be firmly in God's hands. And that the works and those things that we would do, the way that we live our lives, as a result of being built on that foundation of trust, would come out and the world would see it, and they would say, hey, those are the works. Why are you doing that? Why is that different? That would be something that would encounter them Lead them to truth, lead them to, to, to a point where we have an opportunity to now give them that answer for the hope, for the reason of our hope. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, And listen, we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses, all of these that are recorded here in uh, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11 in the hall of faith. We're surrounded by them. We have the witness of scripture over and over confirming God's faithfulness. And His trustworthiness, therefore, it says, Seeing we are surrounded by compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which is so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Right, we put off those things that entangle us, and we put on those things that further us to the kingdom of God. In Romans chapter 6, we week go, we could read an awful lot of Romans chapter 6, but it says, Listen, at one point we were slaves and servants of service to sin, and now we are slaves and servants of to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that is where our allegiance lies in Christ. That's who we serve. I'm talking about discipleship, who are going to follow? Romans 12 1. Beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you give your bodies and sacrifice. And to sacrifice. Holy makes up unto the Lord, which is your
1: reasonable service.
0: Romans 13, one more here. Romans 13, verse 12. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light.
1: It's high time
0: we take serious discipleship. We live as we ought to live in the Lord, as His. most of these being very familiar to you and I because we've been together, we've talked about them but I want to look at one of them, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31 we're just nearing the end here I have one more slide after this 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31 whether therefore you eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. Throughout history, as the church has put together catechisms, those simple statements of instruction of truth, which is ultimately what it is. One of those catechisms tells us that the chief end, the purpose of man, is to glorify God. And here we read that no matter what we do, whether we're eating, whether we're drinking, no matter everything that we do, we do it all for the glory of God. Watched a movie just the other night. And in the movie, this Christian cowboy, he could say, it's involved in this church, and I just shook my head because this lady tells me, you can't be a cowboy and a Christian. She's like, there's no cowboys in the Bible. And as soon as you get a Bible and you read it, you'll see there are no cowboys. So therefore, you can't be a cowboy. And you can't be a Christian. It's a big choice so this guy he's like listen i want to serve the lord and so he that was his life up to that point he's a cowboy he starts serving in the church and all these things and he's got this friend and his friend owns this bar and somewhere along the way and I don't know, somewhere along the way his friend is saved uh, because there's a drastic change there and he tells him he's like listen David was a shepherd. Solomon owned thousands of horses. I mean, he's has gone. There's all these cowboys in the Bible. You can be a cowboy. He says, be a cowboy for Christ. And he goes on, and it's a true story. And this guy develops his entire ministry witnessing to these cowboys and all these rodeos. That he, he competes in all these kinds of things. and has a successful ministry, having church on Sunday, in the bar, his friend, because the Cowboys aren't going to come to church, but they'll come to the bar. In the bar, you know, we can't sell liquor on Sunday, so let's do something with it. All that we do, no matter what it is, for the glory of the Lord, whether we're parents, whether we're spouses, whether we're children, the occupations that we need hold, those things that we encounter. When I go shopping for groceries, I go shopping for groceries for the glory of the Lord. And as silly as that may sound, that's what we're doing. Life is on display for the world around us. and We can see our good works. We conduct ourselves so that we may glorify our Father. We've all been there and seen people who are not shopping for their groceries for the glory of the Lord.
1: That's salt and light in the world.
0: And Joshua, right? We talk about Joshua and Caleb, and they were the guys who, who were the, ten, the two faithful spies. Joshua becomes the second leader of the nation of Israel after they've left Egypt. And he's actually the person that leads them into the promised land. And Joshua chapter 24 is there sort of reinstituting, or, or perhaps that's the wrong way to say they're not reinstituting, but it's there restating the covenant that God has made with the nation of Israel. Joshua phrases it this way as he as he goes through the first uh, 13 verses of that chapter in Joshua 44. He explains the faithfulness of God, how all the ways that he's exhibited his faithfulness to them. Hey, I, I delivered you out of Egypt. I fed you in the wilderness. I, I'm giving you houses that you didn't build and and harvest crops that you didn't plant and, and so on and so forth. But in the middle of all that, Joshua, as he's beginning to institute this, this covenant or reiterate this covenant, it's probably a better way to say it it's already established. As he reiterates this covenant with the nation of Israel, he says in verse 15, to serve the Lord choose this day who you will serve. And hey, listen, if it, because the nation of Israel has got some problems with idolatry. There are all these other pagan gods and all these other things, and, and Joshua knows it, and so he puts a line in the sand, and he's not afraid to be so. He says, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose to say whom you, who you will serve. And I want you to just note one thing from that statement. There's no neutrality. You're God or you're against it. Choose this thing. For you're against, choose the you're going to serve. We talk about a decision to follow Christ in the past, and, and that's appropriate, and that's fine. But sometimes we need that 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 reiteration of the covenant that God made with us through faith in His Son. And He charges them with this. He says, whether the gods of your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell? But as for me and my house, you can choose them or you can choose them or you can choose the living God, but as for me and my house, it doesn't matter what you guys do, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And it doesn't matter if I'm the only one in the only family, I am going to serve the Lord. He exhorts them to fear God only. And at last, he puts that choice before them. You have to choose. Are we going to serve God or are we going to serve someone else? There is no neutral ground. We're formal or against it. And ultimately, for you and I, I would hope that the same challenge would be here for us today. We are going to establish ourselves, right? We are going to serve the Lord. Therefore, Build on bedrock, we're going to dig deep, we're going to put in the work to know where God is standing. It's true. Not only am I going to dig down and know, know it and build upon it, how do I put this into practice so that I'm living it in such a way that people see it and it's a witness to the world around me?
1: Let's pray.
0: What we thank you and we praise you for the opportunity we have to study your word for the, the reproof and correction Lord, that it may bring us. And Lord, I also pray that we would uh, reap the harvest of encouragement. Sometimes we hear things like this, sometimes it feels heavy-handed. But God, I just pray that uh, it, that it's not my heavy hand. And Lord, maybe it's the spirit of conviction that you are sowing our lives, improving us, cracking us. And Lord, by your grace, help us to be those who would walk with you, who would choose to serve you. We know we can only do it by your grace. We're corrupt. We're, we're infallible men. But Lord, you are redeemed.
1: You've done everything
0: necessary to save us, Lord. You've done so
1: for purposefully to be the, the lightest in this world.
0: Help us, Lord, you to know your word. Help us to build on the bedrock of your and Lord, Help us to know how we might live and conduct ourselves so that the world would see and know you. I praise you for everyone here, for all those who hear uh, this particular message. Lord. I pray for your spirit to be with them, to lead and instruct. And Lord, this morning we have opportunity to worship, to sing, and praise you. Lord, I pray that it would be from a spirit and a heart of thankfulness and gratitude for all the people, even for so much conviction in our.